Hello and welcome. I'm Brian Bunk, and this is the Soccer History USA podcast. On today's episode, the Oneida Football Club. The Oneida Football Club was formed by a group of Boston schoolboys in 1862. And just to get a couple of things out of the way right at the start here, they weren't playing soccer, or at least not the kind of soccer that we know of today, and they probably weren't the first football club organized in the United States. So why are we going to talk about them on a podcast dedicated to the history of soccer in the United States? Well, we'll we'll come to that eventually, but suffice it to say that they represent a kind of dividing line between loosely organized, uh, uncodified forms of what we could call folk football from or the transition to organized, codified forms of football, including soccer, including rugby, and eventually including American football. So I I said at the start that the, the Oneidas were not playing soccer, and instead they played a game that later became known as the Boston game, it it had several elements. I mean, it relied a, a great deal on kicking the ball, but you were also allowed to carry the ball. Tackling was okay. Uh, lurking or offsides was against the rules. You could catch it and, and then uh, conduct a free kick. Generally, there were 15 players on a side. There were no goals, nets, goalposts, or or bars. the The goal line was simply that a line scratched into the into the ground. Uh, you you scored a goal by kicking or carrying the ball over the line. You won a game. Each each game lasted one goal, uh, and you uh, won a match by winning two out of three games. The Oneidas didn't have a uniform per se, although they did tie red bandanas around their heads pirate style, as uh, as later was, was described. The tactics were um, developing, I guess we might say. Uh, their uh, formation uh, was in, kind of looked like a Christmas tree with a pyramid of three at the top. They were called rushers or the rush line, followed by four line of four infielders, then came eight outfielders, and finally at the sort of base of the Christmas tree, was uh, the fullback sheet anchor or tender out. Now, we established they're playing something other than modern soccer, which didn't really emerge until the codification of the association football rules in 1863. So what about this question about the Oneidas being first? Well, there seems to be good evidence that other football clubs existed. In 1860, for example, Williston Seminary School in East Hampton formed the Williston Football Club, although there's no record that they played any games. In 1859, there's a newspaper report of uh, a couple of clubs, including one called Aristoconian Football Club, uh, probably schoolboys from Roxbury Latin, since um, the name comes from uh, or I guess came from uh, Aristonicus, who was a, bi- a ball player, that Alexander the Great uh, enjoyed his play so much that he, he uh, made a, erected a statue in the ball player's honor. In 1857, there's a notice in the newspaper about a football match played by the Irish Hurling and Football Club of Hoboken. Now, that may have been Irish football, or what's called Gaelic football now, uh, which did actually have some similarities, it sounds like, to the Boston game. Uh, s- researcher Melvin Smith uh, on the 
American Soccer History Archive website has also chronicled other football clubs that existed prior to 1863 in places spread uh, around the country. So it seems clear that the Oneidas were not, I guess, strictly speaking, the first football club, but they are perhaps the most well-documented. We have a great deal of information about the rules, uh, about the club itself, which is not necessarily the case with these other with these other clubs. They may have been temporary. They may have not played a game like the Williston Football Club, uh, but we just don't simply have enough information. So I guess it's a little bit premature, perhaps, to, to proclaim them the first football club. The Oneidas were formed in Boston by a group of students from a, a preparatory school called Dixwell's Academy and some other students from Boston Latin, and they were taken from the sort of cream of Boston society, and some of the Oneida members would go on to, to great careers in politics or, or in business. Uh, one, Roger Hunky Wolcott, would later become the governor of Massachusetts. Another, Malcolm Forbes, was a, is a relation of uh, former Massachusetts Senator John Kerry. Football had a long history, uh, first in, in England and then in the United States. Uh, I mean, even Native Americans were playing various types of ball games well before the arrival of Europeans. The first reference we have to European-style football comes in the form of a law from the 17th century uh, banning the playing of football in city streets because it was dangerous to people and property. The form of football that the Oneidas were playing, though, probably developed from football that was played at Harvard University. The earliest reference to football at Harvard comes from 1827, although it was probably played even earlier, maybe dating back to the turn of the 19th century. We don't have a lot of information about the rules of the game as it was played at Harvard. Uh, a, little, a few years later, in the 1870s, uh, the Harvard Football Club would, would write down and codify their rules. But prior to uh, that point, we don't have a lot of information. It seems, though, that football may have emerged, uh, or probably the most famous aspect of football at Harvard was what later became known as Bloody Monday, which was a contest between the freshman and sophomore classes uh, on the first day of the new school term every fall. That that began probably as a wrestling match, and again, the rules are vague. It seems more to be about hazing and kicking shins than it does about playing any kind of football. In 1827, a student wrote and published a, a kind of a mock epic poem that tells us something about the way the game was played. The freshman's wrath to soft the direful spring of shins unnumbered bruised, great goddess sing. Let fire and music in my song be mated, pure fire and music unsophisticated. And later on, he, he talks a little bit about the ball. Through warlike crowds, a devious way it wins, and advancing shins meet advancing shins. Across the rampart, many a hero bounds. But sing, Apollo, I can sing no more, for Mars advancing through the dust before. By the 1850s, this match, Bloody Monday, was attracting huge crowds, uh, not only from Boston and from Cambridge, but even newspaper reporters came from as far away as New York. Eventually, the violence of the game and probably its notoriety or its infamy 
uh, led the faculty of Harvard to ban the contest in 1860, and football then kind of lost favor with the students only to be revived in the 1870s. Now, considering the social status of the Oneidas, they undoubtedly would have probably even seen the Bloody Monday. They, pro- they Undoubtedly, they knew about Bloody Monday, and they probably would have had plenty of opportunities to witness the game themselves. Uh, they had other connections with Harvard athletics. Uh, James DeWolf Lovett, who in 1906 published a kind of memoir about um, the sports that he played as a young man called Old Boston Boys and the Games They Played, spoke lovingly about a, 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 I guess we might call it a kind of recreation center called Brahmin's Baths, which was situated on the Charles River, and they spent, the boys and their families could go there uh, for swimming and sailing and rowing. And in the 1850s, rowing became probably the most popular spectator sport in the entire city. And Lovett and other young boys idolized the the crew members who rowed in the city regattas. Just to give you an indication of this, here's how Lovett described on regatta days when when the, the rowers would appear at Brahmin's Baths. Merely to catch a glimpse of them, I have squirmed between the legs of a crowd and all but climbed over their heads. But these were state occasions and occurred, alas, like angels' visits. We also know that in 1844, Harvard students pooled their money together to buy a 37-foot racing boat, which they called Oneida. Uh, this boat would later become famous uh, in uh, for being the 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 boat that the Harvard crew rode to victory over Yale in 1852 in what has uh, been described as the first intercollegiate athletic contest in American history. So the Oneidas, or the schoolboy Oneidas, who formed the football club, probably knew about the boat uh, because of its fame and because of the popularity of the regattas, even though it had been sold by the Harvard students uh, before 1863. Later on, members of the Oneida would claim that they named the team after uh, the after Lake Oneida, uh, which is near the home of uh, Garrett uh, Miller, the, the team's captain in upstate New York. Uh, but I think it's probably far more likely that they got it from the Harvard boat of the same name. We do know that they copied the habit of wearing red handkerchiefs. That was also something that Harvard uh, crew members had done in the 1858 Beacon Cup the the captain of the Harvard crew team had purchased red Chinese silk handkerchiefs and they wore them in that particular race. Also in 1857, a newspaper story was published talking about the different crews that were at Harvard. Each class had one or more crews, and they tended to be named after the boat. And the one uh, named after uh, the Oneida boat was called the Oneida Club. So Uh, That seems to be the origin of the Oneida's name. There were also probably English influences on the Oneida's, not necessarily in terms of the rules of the game, although maybe dating way back. Uh, Football rugby rules and, and association football rules were not codified until much later, although it's during this same period in the 1840s and 1850s when rugby is becoming more more codified, uh, and the first published rules uh, exist and appear during that time period. One possible source of English influence, however, was Thomas Hughes's famous uh, 
um, memoir slash uh, fictional account of of his time at the school or called Tom Brown's School Days, which was published in England in 1857. And then just a few months later, the same book was published in Boston under the title School Days at Rugby. And so the Oneidas probably could have had uh, could have read this text as it was widely available. It was one of the publisher's uh, most popular uh, selections from that period of about 1857 to 1863. Now, as I said, the rules probably weren't copied from school days at rugby or from English models, but what may have been copied was the increasing organization and the emphasis of, on tactics. There's a scene in the book where um, describes how the certain groups of, of players had begun to form what we might call teams and to develop tactics, and that by playing together, even though they had a small number of, of players, they could defeat much larger numbers of opponents. And so it's possible that the captain of the Oneida, Gat Miller, and uh, his uh, one another teammate who were famous for staying up late into the night designing tactics for the Oneidas may have been influenced by uh, by this de description in Hughes's famous book. Now, the 1850s and the 1860s is an important period in the, the, I guess, organization of many American sports, not just football. We talked about uh, rowing, uh, but other sports were also in the process of becoming more codified and more organized. So, for example, the first baseball teams in Boston were formed in 1854, the Boston Olympics. Later, other clubs like the Elm Trees and the Green Mountains appeared. Uh, by 1858, there was a Massachusetts State Baseball Association, and uh, it had, within a few years after 1858, had over 75 member clubs. So football was not the only sport that was becoming more organized. Uh, baseball was also doing the same. Now, why is it during this period that all of these sports, including football or soccer, become more codified? Why is there more interest in forming clubs, whether they be baseball or football? Part of it has to do with two developments. One is urbanization and population growth. The city of Boston, the population exploded in these decades, and there were reformers and other politicians and educators and ministers began to worry about the conditions that existed in the city of Boston. The other important development during this period is the emergence of what would later be called muscular Christianity in England and in the United States. And this was a belief that sport or athletic activity could have both physical and moral benefits, that in order to be a good Christian, you had to be morally and and um, morally pure and strong, but also physically pure and strong. So the city of Boston, as I mentioned, population grew a great deal. Between 1810 and 1840, Boston's population went from 50,000 to over 125,000. And then by 1850, there were 200,000 people living in the city. So conditions in terms, sanitary conditions, overcrowding, those were, were serious issues. Other problems also emerged, uh, what we might call, or what people at the time called improper amusements. And this uh, this was things like brothels, oh, yeah. 
Some of the popular ones were called the Tin Pot and the Beehive, uh, lewd theater shows, and blood sports and gambling were also hugely popular. So there were all sorts of calls, again, ministers, educators, reformers, to try to organize activity that would stimulate higher pleasures, uh, and that included physical education and sports. One of the most prominent voices in this chorus calling for a, a kind of physical, a, a kind of muscular Christianity was named Thomas Wentworth Higginson, and he was a Unitarian minister who published a series of widely read essays that essentially argued that sport was good for both physical and moral health. Now, it turns out that, that Higginson had played football at Harvard in the late 1830s when he was a student there, and many years later he wrote fondly about the game, about the manly, straightforward game uh, that he played there. So we can see that a series of developments really coalesced in the period around 1863 that contributed to the formation of the Oneida Football Club. And I think that's where its importance really lies for the history of American soccer, is that it really, in some ways, the Oneida Football Club represents the transition, or a break, if you will, from the old folk football, uh, loosely organized, rules not written down, uh, not a lot of clubs, to the later development of modern football in all its forms. And that includes rugby, that includes American football eventually, and it includes, of course, soccer. Thank you for listening to the Soccer History USA podcast. For episode notes, please visit the website at www.soccerhistoryusa.org and follow me on Twitter at Soccer History US.